Hey everybody, welcome back to my basement. Hopefully, uh, and the day is not done, but hopefully you've learned a lot over the course of the day. I know I have. Here's a little bit of wisdom I can share with you, or maybe a little piece of information I can share. Over 1,500 people have been with us from around the globe over the course of today, tuning in live, which frankly is astonishing. If you were with us in Texas last year, you know, we had something on the order of about 950 people with us, which was amazing in our largest gathering ever. But here today, we know we had 2,000 people or just about 2,000 people signed up, but virtually everybody turned up, which is pretty astonishing. Um, and here's where I'm going to do a quick mea culpa, and then I'm going to get to a little surprise for you. So during our breakout sessions, as you know, we tried to get started at 3 o'clock, but as I told you in an email yesterday, we were going to probably make a few mistakes, and we did. We knew that there were going to be, when you're trying to put a lot of electricity and wires together, that occasionally you're going to discover a glitch or a gremlin, and we sure enough did. So thank you for your abiding patience and good cheer and grace. I'm glad that all the breakout sessions were successful. We got them started a little bit late, but hopefully that didn't create too much hardship for you or your schedule, but we were glad that we were able to do them. And so thank you for your forbearance and thanks to all the wonderful breakout teams and everybody who's been contributing across the span of today. I think hopefully you have a sense of what a rich and amazing community this is. And now I have a special surprise for you. It's my great honor. If you've been with us before, then you know who this gentleman is because he doesn't need an introduction. But uh, if you haven't, then it is my great honor and privilege to introduce somebody who I love and think of as family. But he's an American hero. He is an American hero. His name is Dr. Clarence Benjamin Jones. He wrote the dream speech along with Dr. Martin Luther King, and he is the man who smuggled the letter from the Birmingham jail out of the Birmingham trial. He traveled alongside Dr. King in his work across a span of a decade. Uh, and he is joining us now uh, for a couple of moments of just quick reflection before we have Alexis and Kristen joining us. They will be with us just up at the top of the hour. Sir, how are you doing today? And thank you for making the time for all of us. And I think it's, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to have an opportunity to, I can't see all of you, but I know um, many of you know who I am and we've met in person and uh, you know the uh, the uh, the affection and uh, respect i have for your work and for you individually even though i cannot see all of you now these are ex these are it's a, it's an understatement to say an ex extraordinary times and uh, uh, super extraordinary times ironically for those of you who were uh, in the uh, in the skill set of communications in the skill set of uh, 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 being communications officers on behalf of many of you for nonprofits, the foundations, the different organizations. And uh, your skill set is being really challenged. Your skill sets are being really challenged now uh, uh, in, in a way in which you have to be certain that what you see and hear really is what you are seeing and hearing. And that, uh, and that you live in an environment, an overall environment, which is not too complicated. It's called a unit of environment, it's called a fact-based environment, where there, I know there's a new kind of philosophy now called alternative facts, but in communicating information, uh, there are alternative opinions, but there are no alternative facts. The facts by definition are facts. One can have an opinion about the facts. Now, why do I say that? 
because I cannot remember, I mean, I can remember very turbulent times in our country, but uh, this is one of the most challenging times I have uh, experienced and that I'm living through. And it's especially challenging for those of you who are uh, communicating specialists in which your objective should be, and I'm sure is, to try to transmit, uh, to first to gather, and to trans gather, collect, and transmit information to the, um, the appropriate persons in the respective organizations for whom you work, so that those organizations can make a decision based on uh, the additional information that you have provided. Uh, many of the, your organizations are foundations and nonprofit organizations, and that uh, they may have a general organizational charter commitment to try to make things better within the confines of their limited charter and the geography where they live. But in order to do that, they have to know that they can communicate accurately what you have been telling them. And so there's a very high bar now that uh, um, you face. Uh, how to be the very best that you can be and to how to uh, not be trapped in this new alternative universe, which by definition, I think is inappropriate. That is two and two equals four, and the speed of light is 180,000 miles per second. You know, there's, there's things that have been established. And this is important because if you don't adhere to your responsibility uh, uh, and, and, and being superb communication specialists, you will, as agents of the organizations that you serve, you will undermine the capacity of that organization to be credibly um, accepted. You will undermine that organization, your organization's ability when they made recommendations or take appropriate actions to be credibly accepted and listened to because those who, there will be persons who will say, oh, can we acknowledge that the facts that the problem is A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, but um, for some reason, you have not told us or communicated to us the information we need to hear. Now, that's sort of the, the objective skill set. <laughs> now, behind that objective skill set, we're all human beings. And we all are subject to anger, passion, maybe some feelings of hate and so forth. But I've learned from Dr. King, you have to love the people you serve. 
you may not respect everything they say or do, but basically you have to love them as human beings, which means that it presents a very high bar. You have to want to accurately communicate what you see they are doing and saying that is opposed to what your organization that you're representing seeks to do. But you cannot, in the process of doing that, throw, throw over what you see a lens of presumptive disrespect, a lens of they don't know what they're talking about. And how can they be saying that? They cannot be serious. They can be very serious. And they can be deeply committed to what they believe in. But your challenge as communicators is to find a way. After all, what are words? Words are just forms, language, you know? So you have to find a way of using your skill sets of reaching them. And if you're unable to reach them, guess what? The burden is not on them. The burden is on you. Because that means that something you are doing made it impossible for you to communicate to the person you're seeking to reach. And sometimes that can unconsciously arise from a, a lack of appreciation. I, I'm not talking about uh, romantic love. I'm talking about you have to love and care about the people you serve. You cannot start off with a presumption. You know, they're scum. They're not, they're not as good as we are. And if they would only listen to what we're seeking to do, we'd be able to offer some grant money. No, you can't do that. You have to court your opposition a level of respect that will enable them to respect and genuinely accept you as persons who really, not in word, but in deed, care about their interest. Thank you, sir. I know you're going to be back with us over the next couple of days, and I hope that you are as thrilled as we are about the award that's in your name for the third yes. time. We'll be awarding the Clarence B. Jones Impact oh, Award. Yes, I'm really impressed. Wow, what a extraordinary organization and woman as I uh, watched her. It's just unbelievable. Well, speaking of an extraordinary woman, I think you and I can both agree that our friend Alexis is an extraordinary woman through the oh. work that she's done throughout her career and the work she's yet to do. For, for all of us, uh, we are grateful to have her and our friend Kristen Mack with us. And now it's a chance for us to both, I guess, say goodbye to our friends for now. We'll be watching. We're going to become audience participants, and we'll get to watch Kristen and Alexis take it away in just a moment. Thank you. Hello, everyone.
Thank you for joining us this afternoon. I am Kristen Mack, and I'm so grateful to have you here and more than happy to be joined by Alexis McGill-Johnson. Alexis, welcome this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. It's great to be here. So you hold many titles. I'm just going to name a few of them. Um, You are a social and justice racial leader. You are a mother, a political and cultural organizer, an advocate for reproductive rights and accessible, affordable health care. And you are the second Black woman to serve as the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Tell us what led you to this moment. Oh, thank you. I think of all of those, I think the most important right now is uh, homeschooling a sixth grader and and relearning my sixth grade math. So so I appreciate all of that um, introduction. I am... um, you know, what led me to this moment, I think, is a just, for many of us, just a deep desire to uh, to be engaged at such a critical and urgent time. And, and I think at a moment when we are in the middle of a pandemic, we are in the middle of uh, fierce and unrelenting attacks on sexual and reproductive health care. We are in the middle of uh, one of the uh, most extraordinary racial reckonings that our country has had since the since the time um, um, when um, when Dr. Jones was uh, was organizing and writing and um, and we're in the mo- in the midst of um, and obviously a critical election and I think it was just a moment to step in I've been a board member and uh, interim president um, at Planned Parenthood uh, over the last year a board member for a decade. And I think there was just a moment where I felt like I, all of the things that I had been engaged in over my, over my lifetime, from my, my political scientist background to my organizing of, of hip hop uh, heads during the um, voter die campaign to the work that I did co-founding Perception Institute to really understand how we speak to the unconscious bias. Uh, And then my service with Planned Parenthood, it just felt like it's a moment where I could bring all of those pieces to bear and try to, you know, help us in a a critical, uh, urgent time. Um, And so I'm really grateful to be here and talk a little little bit about that, those experiences and what we see. So it's one thing to say yes to interim service. (laughs) It's another thing to say, yes, that you will do it on a permanent basis. What was that transition like for you um, when you said yes in June? Okay, I'm in. I'm going to do this for the long haul. You know, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that, um, you know, I really did feel like I could make a serious uh, contribution and that it wasn't, you know, I really had to speak to my quiet self and and just sit and, and kind of reflect on the work that I had done for the organization over the, particularly over the last year and my engagement with the, with the staff and the team, understanding how critical the mission is even now, obviously, as we um, await the fate of Justice Ginsburg's seat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really, I think, felt like at a moment when we were also grappling with, you know, the deaths of, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, whose, you know, office, whose murderers were not um, 
charged in her death today to uh, to George Floyd. It felt like that race reckoning and the need to really jump into those conversations and really drive a conversation around equity in, in our work and, um, and our ability to see that through the lens of Planned Parenthood patients and how we could organize. It just felt like a calling. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I, I've never felt more urgent in this moment, and I've never felt, quite frankly, as free as possible um, to do the work because I know that the the fate of my my girls, my community, um, our families depend on how we show up in these fights for these next few decades. And it's going to be um, we need to lay continue to lay the groundwork and build on that foundation. So it just felt like you know leadership. Sometimes you you find in everyday experiences. Sometimes it calls on you. Sometimes you just see some really important fights and you want in on them. And I think for me, it was a, it's been a combination of all of that. When you think about all of the work that you have done, um, is there a through line in your service? Is there something that, um, that connects everything that you have done in, in all of your work? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I think that, um, you know, I I keep coming back to this theme of of freedom and really trying to interrogate what does it what does it mean to really feel free? What does it mean to really kind of show up in understanding that that our uh, that the movements that we are engaged that are actually quite intersectional? Um, how do they manifest? How do we operationalize that? that intersectionality. And for me, you know, as someone who's worked primarily on racial justice my whole career, you know, I think this, this particular movement moment that we are in um, is, 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 is the through line. So, you know, when I think about the movement for Black Lives, uh, they're asking the same questions that we're asking at Planned Parenthood. You know, are our bodies our own? Are we seen? Are we loved? Are we celebrated? have control of our own bodies? Do we have our own freedom when we walk out the door and get in our car and drive down the street, much less wake up in our own bedroom? You know, if we can control our bodies, then that is the key to self-determination. So I think it's been really important to to kind of connect the dots between the movements um, and ensure that, you know, when I when I think about reproductive rights or racial justice, that they're they're intersecting and overlapping in ways that really are about a fight for imagination, for our ability to actually just, um, you know, think that through. You know, I, I, I am um, somewhat of a math major. I was kidding around the, the, um, the math work with my daughter, but I, I actually do think about movements as well in, in sorts of equations. And I've been saying a lot that freedom for us equals access times power. And that freedom, right, that, that ability to like just define our own agency, to stand unapologetically in our identities, to be who we are, make decisions about ourselves, our bodies, our future, that is, is critical but that access, right? Like, how do we create that access? Are we creating that through, you know, our health centers, through our telehealth, through our online education? All of that's great, but we have to create that policy in order to get that access. So we need to build power, right? And and the power that is is so critical for all of our movements um, is really um, important of how we intersect and how we really build the infrastructure that will help sustain that. Um, so that through line around freedom is really important. How that plays out in these various movements and come together, I think, is the the kind of mental equation that I've been working on in various parts of my career, um, just to figure out how to both communicate it and then also how to build it, the infrastructure, 
so that our, you know, both the, the kind of heart mind that we do in communications is also backed up by the, by the power um, of, our, of our bodies showing up at the polls and in our policy fights. And how is Planned Parenthood being received as you take that intersectional approach to, um, to movement organizing? I mean, it's always been an organization that is, has been at the, at the forefront of um, fighting on behalf of women and, and making sure that, um, that women's rights are at the forefront of movements, but this is a different approach. So how is it being received under your leadership and taking um, that intersectional lens? Well, look, I mean, it's been, um, when we look through the lens of our patients, right? We, you know, people come to us for reproductive health care and sexual um, uh, health care, um, but they they themselves are not, you know, that that's what they come to us as patients, right? They themselves are living fully intersectional lives. They are, you know, worried about ICE showing up at their job. They're worried, you know, about their children. They're worried about, you know, driving down the street and, and getting pulled over. You know, they're worried in this moment about, you know, the economy and uh, climate and, you know, all of these other things that are kind of intersecting with their lives. And so, you know, to me, it, it makes perfect sense to think about how do we, um, how do we show up with the centering of our patients showing up for them, knowing that we are fighting in every, every way. I mean, to me, that is really the essence of how we build, not just build power for us, but also build power in community and build power um, in the movement to, uh, you know, to push these conversations further. Um, so, you know, I, there, there are many folks inside of the Federation who, who see it and, and, and understand exactly why this is so critical. Um, and I, think knowing that, um, you know, it doesn't diminish the the access for reproductive rights. In fact, it expands and helps us make um, our fates linked between movements in a way mm-hmm. um, that can only help us um, all grow stronger. So I think you have to ha- have to operate from a theory of abundance and, and that power and, um, and access are not finite. And that that actually allows us to step into uh, these conversations much differently. Yeah. So I I guess I should not have been surprised that um, on Friday and and it it made sense that you um, and and the organization made a statement on the the evening that um, Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg left this earth Um, and you as you know, she was a feminist icon and a champion of women's rights and reproductive rights. And, you know, we didn't really take enough time to honor her legacy. Um, but you you said that night, and I'm going to just read the statements um, that you issued. You said, tonight we honor that legacy, but tomorrow we are going to need to get to work to preserve the ideals that she spent her life's work defending. Because this is not an understatement. The fate of our rights, our freedoms, our health care, our bodies, our lives, and our country depend on what happens over the coming months. So what do you intend to do to honor RBG's legacy? 
I mean, um, it was a blow on Friday, you know, I mean, I think we've, um, you know, we've all been talking about canceling 2020, right? This is, this is one (laughs) after another and, and somehow we keep getting up and we keep putting one foot in front of the other. And we keep trying to figure out what more we can do, what more we can leave on the field. Um, And I think to me, that's the best way to honor her legacy, right? I mean, let's remember who, you know, who we're talking about. You, you and I, you know, even as Black women would not be sitting here if it weren't for RBG, right? The the right to sign a mortgage without a man, the right to have a bank account without a male co-signer, the right to have a job without being discriminated based on gender, the right to have you know, to be pregnant and kids and still work. You know, those are things that are still core to who we are as women. And then when you layer on the really important kind of civil rights and racial justice work that um, of which she was a part of in the courts, it just feels like we have to, you know, we really have to hold that freedom and hold that um, that fight in a way that um, that does honor her legacy and that we also pass that out, you know, pass that along. I got to meet her, um, to, to crazy story, but um, a couple of weeks before um, I actually got to go to the Supreme Court for the first time to hear the June medical decision about provider uh, admitting privileges in Louisiana, uh, wow. there was a dinner um, at Union Theological Seminary and Bill Moyers, extraordinary communicator that he is did this this interview with her um about her uh her faith and how it um really showed up in um her uh you know her her opinions and her dissents and um and first of all i think just because you know sitting in the in the communication space like the fact that she's such a cultural icon and she got who she was she walked out on stage she had this little canvas bag with a like bedazzled notorious rbg on it i love it, I love it. oh it was like so like <laughs> right she just put it right next to her like yeah she's like i see you seeing me you know like <laughs> totally felt it all. Um, But she, you know, but she talked about her dissents, right? She talked about how important and how carefully she worded every single dissent because there were multiple meanings in, in, um, in different ways. And she didn't want anybody to be confused. So she would read her dissents in, in ways to make sure that people really understood exactly what she meant when she was writing them. And, and Moyers at one point asked her about, you know, just all of the horrific acts of the, the Trump administration, in particular over the last few years. And she said, and he said, you know, how do you grapple with the fact that like some of these things are becoming laws, you know, some of these, these, these policies of like separating families at the border, like, how do you grapple with that? And she said, you know, um, she quoted Thomas Jefferson and she said, when injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. Mm. And that clarifying kind of statement in that moment, that permission from a justice, from a Supreme Court justice to defy and to dissent and to resist in a way, um, it just felt like like that is the way we're honoring her right now. Like that that ability just to resist, knowing that you know, just because we are we are given a certain um, uh, position doesn't mean that we can't continue to fight and to make sure our voices are heard. And so, you know, it is. The, the fights that we are in front of right now are are um, enormous. There, there yeah. are 17 cases that are like literally um, a case away or a step away from the Supreme Court. 
um, that are related to access to abortion. The entire ACA is at risk this fall, where almost 30 million people could lose their health insurance. And so, you know, like when I think about what that means, that kind of injustice becoming law and what our role is in this moment to really honor not just Justice Ginsburg, but to honor John Lewis, who we've also lost this year, you know, to honor uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, it just feels like it's really important to continue to fight and, and to resist. Yeah. You you touched on this briefly, but I want to um, talk about this both at a macro level and at a um, more of a micro level. But when we think about systems change, because that is something that is um, at the forefront of what we think about in philanthropy and what, you know, people are talking about at their kitchen tables right now. People are talking about systemic racism and systemic oppression and, um, and how systems need to change. How are you thinking about systemic change through the lens of Planned Parenthood? Yeah, and I, you know, I think that um, I am, I'm so glad that the conversation is around systemic change, um, because I think that you know, for decades in, in philanthropy and nonprofit world in particular, we've been trying to elevate people to understand how structural racism operates. And, and in doing so, it's because it's a call to actually have a, a structural or systemic solution, right? We understand that this problem is not about individuals or groups of people, right? But that is actually the kind of structures and systems that have pulled people um, into these situations. How do we actually come through with a systemic uh, solution that also gives us, you know, opportunities for individuals to act within that, that agency or at least transform the interpersonal dynamics. And so one of the things that I think I was most excited to bring into Planned Parenthood, and I have been doing this work um, for a long time as a, as a board leader, but to really kind of, you know, be steering the ship, um, you know, thinking about like what equity really means, how do we develop the right thought leadership on equity at Planned Parenthood? particularly because we are such a critical part of the public health infrastructure. And when I think about the ways in which we want to show up in community and how we center them, you know, um, you know, it means something different for me. And, you know, I think a lot of the time, the resistance that people feel when we have conversations around equity um, prompts them to to want to like, let's have a conversation. Let's let's figure out what equity really means for us. Or let's figure out what equi- equity, you know, let's come up with a shared definition of equity. And I've been saying, you know, equity actually has a definition, you know, Merriam-Webster and others, right? It really means, it means, um, you know, this actually has two definitions. The first one is around ownership, right? To have a stake in something, whether you have equity in a company. Uh, and the other is to reduce disparity. And I think it's so important to bring those things together because ownership of, of how we are creating freedom together, that to me is the essence of belonging and how we, you know, benchmark ourselves, how we, how we build the right work that will help us reduce p- disparities is the other piece of really building that ownership. And so, you know, our strategy to kind of move our organization forward is not to debate what equity is, it's actually to ask ourselves the hard questions as to what does it really mean for us to respond in that moment? How much, what are we really willing to, uh, to give in order to, um, to expand equity for all? 
What are we really willing to um, sit in the kind of pain and the discomfort as an organization um, so that we can sit silent and learn from our partners, from our communities about the kind of work that we need to do? And so I am I'm really spending a lot of time internally around these questions, right? I think it's we also are like very quick to move to tactics and, and strategies. Um, but I think it, without doing the work of asking those questions of like, what is equity really worth to us? What are we really willing to give to give up to live in a more equitable world? Um, that to me, if we don't kind of think about equity as more than just an outcome, but rather a strategy that helps us have those series of, of conversations, um, it's really hard. And I think the tactics and the strategies flow from that, but we have to be aligned on what that aspiration is. And um, and that's the work that in this particular moment feels the most urgent um, because we really have to set ourselves up for a long road in order to build the right um, strategy that will be sustainable. What, what do those uncomfortable conversations <laughs> look like? You know, I mean, there's a lot of racial anxiety. Um, there's a lot of you know, I really appreciated what Dr. Jones is saying, because I think it's something I've said kind of throughout my career at Perception, which is that we can't always reduce opposition or ambivalence to prejudice, right? I mean, it's not kind of how our brains work. Sometimes our brains are just processing the anxiety and getting them still in a way to really understand how we ask, ask those questions. Um, and I think it's really important in our, you know, in our communication strategies as well, like how do we um, how do we create the space to um, and the and the permission to be um, uncomfortable? The permission, as some of my team members say, the permission to be raggedy um, <laughs> <laughs> in a moment that really you know will will lead to those those breakthroughs, those ahas. You know, it is it is hard. I mean, I I am um, I you know I think because I've been a practitioner in the space, I have a healthy ability to compartmentalize, right? And appreciate the irony of, 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 and I appreciate the irony of that. Um, it is hard to be in a space where you're watching your, your colleagues and your team members and your friends, like come to realizations that you feel like you've had for a long time, that you've lived for a long time mm -hmm. and how we create the space or spaces, you know, for that to happen separately or internally, the kinds of circles that um, help us get there. I think is is also really meaningful work, and um, part of the intent that you have to set is to you know is to create the space to practice, right? I mean, like we don't we we talk all the time about like failing fast, you know, as leading to to innovation, but we almost never teach what it means to fail fast around issues of race, so that we can you know, live in the discomfort, but then also kind of like pick ourselves up and, and not let that kind of prevent us from doing the work. Um, so that to me is, is um, the hard and heart work of the, of the moment. Um, but again, I feel like without wrestling with that, we're, we will keep coming back to these wounds on, you know, and I think particularly for people of color who have been holding it in, in, in predominantly white institutions, at least, it feels like, you know, we can't afford to keep coming back to that well because it is quite frankly traumatizing. It is indeed. Um, so you, you've hinted at the work that you um, have done as co-founder and a former co-director of Perception where you brought together researchers and advocates and strategists who um, translate this notion of the mind sciences 
um, which is research on race and ethnic and gender and other identities where you're thinking through solutions that promote the idea of belonging. Um, I want to spend time breaking down what all of that means. <laughs> um, and if you can just explain in everyday terms the concept of mind sciences. Um, and I think you have a little game here, <laughs> um, a fun test for people. Okay, I will I will cue the slide in one second, but let me give you, oh, nope, shut the slide down. Um, one second on just the mind sciences and kind of our unconscious networks. And then I'm going to ask you guys to, to do a little bit of a test with me. Um, so, you know, the Perception Institute was founded in, in 2009. Um, it came after a lot of work that we were doing actually during the 2008 Obama campaign. We were like worried about how race would show up if we had a, you know, uh, a black president, would we be able to have these conversations? What would it look like? And all of this research around how bias operates um, in our brains was still living largely in the academy. And these researchers and strategists who've been studying the science of literally how our brains and bodies process race and gender and other identities um, became the foundation for, um, for, the, um, for the Perception Institute. And, you know, it's premised on the idea that we have strong values of, of, of equality and fairness um, and, and, and equity. And yet the ways in which our brain operates because it has been primed for, for so many years around, uh, around issues has actually causes our brains to, our bodies to actually behave in ways that are contrary to our values. And we wanted to understand, you know, how that showed up, not um, largely, actually, it was, a, it was an exercise in, um, in our communication strategies that we wanted to inform. And then we found out that the interventions could be applied, or we started working through with the interventions um, in a number of sectors. But before I go deeper into our unconscious networks, and I know everyone has probably heard the term implicit bias, but but I want to use um, use this this slide to give us a quick cue about how we can collectively experience our, our bodies and brains at the same time. So let's see. Is it up? Can we see it? Yes. Oh, wait, I guess I can't see it. Okay. Maybe I'm the only one who can't see it. <laughs> Okay, so if you can see it, what I want you to do is just really quickly um, read the word, read the text out loud to yourself very quickly. I'm sorry, state the color of the text very quickly. Not sure if this is going to work. Can you see? How about you? Why don't you try it? Kristen, why don't you try the, the colors of the text? See if you can do it very quickly. Oh, you now you're going to embarrass me. Let me see. I have it up <laughs> on my screen over here. All right. So I'm going to do um, yeah. blue, red, green, black. Faster. Oh. <laughs> green, black. This is where I get tripped up. Red, <laughs> green, red, blue, black, 
and then I am gonna stop. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, you basically demonstrated in real time what it, what it feels like and what it looks like, and we can send it around. But the the notion is that I asked you to state the color of the of the text, and um, when the colors match the words, it was a lot easier for you for you to do that. But when the word red was in the color black it just totally tripped your brain and it became harder to do. Um, and that's not a surprise, right? Because you all as communicators know that for ever since you were what, like, you know, you know, three, four, five years old, you started to learn that letters when they are strung together, they actually are create words and then buried in those words is meaning. And our brains are constantly searching for meaning. And so it becomes really hard for you to disrupt a process that you've spent your entire life perfecting in order to build knowledge and to really understand kind of what's operating at any given time. The reason um, that this test is so important is because it, it shows us that, you know, um, that experience of our unconscious brain, our brain's process somewhere upwards of 40 million bits of information in the same amount of time unconsciously that it does about 10 to 40 bits of information consciously. So how our, our brains learn to process that information is to essentially put things into categories, it puts things into, into these schemas that then um, that and those schemas, we give them meaning and they again, they help us build knowledge. So I don't have to learn, you know, what a what a chair is. I've known how to sit down, you know, my, you know, largely my whole life. But about seven months ago, I had to learn how to really go on Zoom and how to get myself off mute. I had to learn how to, you know, think about all the ways in which I was going to navigate virtually. And like I said, I had to learn how to uh, teach uh, teach myself uh, fifth grade math. All these things that are in our brains, when we use them regularly, they become really you know helpful ways for us to navigate. When we have to relearn them, it becomes exhausting and it becomes you know tiring. And so what I loved about what you did, Kristen, when you were reading is that you, and you obviously knew the trick, um, you know, having done it multiple times before, but when you got to the point where you're just like, I'm just going to stop, it was your brain saying, you know what, I don't want to process information that feels inconsistent anymore. And if I'm forced to do it, it's going to give me a little bit of anxiety and I'm just going to shut down. Yeah. So we think about that with respect to, um, you know, how our brains process race and gender, you know, when our brains are essentially trying to you know, understand categories of people, those schemas, you know, stereotypes, which we all, you know, know what a stereotype is, a trait about a particular person, that stereotype is actually a schema that our brains have developed about people. And, you know, when we know that um, the ways in which we show up in media, whether it's people of color or women or LGBT communities, the ways in which we show up become imprinted. That's the way, that's the lens through which we are processing things. And oftentimes the ways in which we try to disrupt those processes uh, can reinforce um, unintentionally the, the very messages that, that um, we're trying to disrupt. I mean, it is so um, beautiful in its simplicity. <laughs> and I think even for, for those of us who think that we are not susceptible to any of this and we think that we have, you know, that we are socially and racially conscious that um, to just to do this in, in 10 seconds and I just displayed for everyone <laughs> how, you know, how this works. And I remember the, I, I should just say that, um, that the MacArthur Foundation works with perception and, um, 
And when you all showed this slide to us, it was um, it was illuminating and telling, and at least to me, um, clear that we needed to work with you <laughs> to um, to help us get to a place where. Um, where we could work through all of, of the things that, that you talk about as an organization and primarily to really get to a place where um, we could have a sense of belonging for, for people um, both inside the organization and with the people who, um, who we serve and work with. Because I think if you don't have that internally, then it's impossible to do it um, with, with the work that we are called to do um, is, is, is a foundation. Um, I, you know, again, I, I want to be conscious that we're talking about we're, you know, we have a room full of communicators here, um, and that we are word people. At the end of the day, that we like language and stories and um, creating narratives. When you think about um, the the work that that you do with data and um, and how that, at the end of the day, informs the narratives that um, that are created. How do you marry the two um, when you think about data and and words shaping narratives? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's a great question, and I think that for most of us, if we are in the social justice space in particular, our job has been to document disparity because that actually helps make a case for funding, it helps make a case for, um, you know, where we have to focus our interventions, our strategies. If we are literally trying to, you know, get to equity, it means that we have to really understand and we've got to, to research and study where where our, you know, deficits are um, perhaps in our in our communities and not because of communities, but just literally where, where it is unequal. And um, uh, the challenge is that the ways in which we all and talk about disparities unintentionally, like we think it's actually creating empathy. Um, and in fact, it is actually remarginalizing the very people that we're trying to get more resources to. And that has a lot to do with, again, the way our brains process um, facts and information um, as it relates to, to stereotypes and groups. And I think particularly in this moment where we are talking about an intersection of a lot of different issues, how do we start to unpack that? So, you know, I think that... Um, when you think about a group that has already been marginalized um, and you, you add a layer of, you know, perhaps um, um, other things that they can't access because, because they've been marginalized, we are, we're actually dehumanizing them. We're actually kind of um, burying them further down the racial hierarchy um, in our brains. And I, I see it a lot in foundation documents. I see, you know, I see it like when you actually do a scan of kind of the ways in which their, their investments have created equity. I see a lot in the ways, um, you know, our, our, our folks have, um, you know, even the ways in which, uh, you know, we are talking about the impact that will happen to millions of women, you know, should, um, you know, and, and folks who are seeking abortion should, uh, should Roe be overturned. And so, um, so I think for communicators, I think sometimes it is being more conscious of the fact that, that, um, that our brains don't process data in the same way that they, they, that we need 
narratives to help us kind of through an arc of a story that really centers the humanity of the you know of the of the subject in a way that and and creates possibility and hope and you mm-hmm. know um you know possibility there and so i think that it's it's really understanding that and it's also understanding how you disarm anxiety in the process part of what i love about the bias research is that it allows us to afford everybody their humanity you know particularly the implicit bias work you know explicit bias we know what that is we you know and our brains have a process for that we have a process for understanding when, you know, um, when multiple things happen at once, like the week, but you know, the weeks between Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd, it was just like successive killings, and you felt like you really could understand um, in that moment how structural racism was operating. Um, but it is the implicit that oftentimes, you know, gets explained away, and so we need messages and narratives that that help us put that in a frame, but also then help us. Um, you know, um, structure a response that does not, that allows people their humanity and that allows people to understand that they can hold a sense of fairness, but in many ways, their, their very fairness, the way they've been taught to practice fairness, um, is incorrect. Um, Mm -hmm. and so like, like really working through that process so that they can marry their sense of fairness and their values with their humanity, I think is really the complicated work of communicators. So, you know, when you think about creating these sort of narrative frameworks um, and you um, and you have this perception, at least, has this focus on conversation and not confrontation, what what does that look like in practice um, when when you are, you know, trying to compel people and make an argument to bring them um you know, to, to your side and make a case for your work? Well, I think that, that a lot of the ways in which we, and I, and I'm, again, I'm talking about a universe of people that are in a persuadable category, right? People who want to align on a values, you know, and I, and I want to distinguish that because a lot of the work that we started um, really was about implicit bias or that unconscious bias in a, in an, in an era of uh, a black president. We are living in a total Really different world right now. The the, the explicit is um, is is free and running wild, and it is harmful, and it is it is giving color, cover for very bad policy. And I don't want to you know end messaging, so I want to just kind of distinguish those two things. Yeah. Um, but even still, I think that the goal still should be to try to figure out how we have the the right conversations um, in order to um, in in order to give people that deeper understanding understanding and that that starts with with um uh, how we disarm with our messaging right i think learning for us teaching about um or having people learn about racial anxiety which is our brain's automatic you know our, our, our uh, unconscious response in many ways to having conversations around race out of fear that you know they will uncover you know that discomfort of what it means to have have sit in you know have, having had privilege and and you know white supremacy for for their existence, like that's the kind of thing that we have to disarm in our language so that people can see themselves connected to the system, but also separate, you know, from the, from the system in order to actually have a response that will help them shift. And, um, and so, so using the disparity language or the shaming language um, doesn't necessarily help us um, cover that. And in fact, for many people, as I said earlier, sometimes our best messages can reinforce their best, their, you know, their best defenses. And so it, it just further marginalizes their own experience. It doesn't allow us to have the conversation. Um, but if we do things like um, we came up with this theory around um, 
what we call ACE, which is leading with, with a collective aspiration, like bringing people into the values conversation, mm-hmm. um, talking about the kind of um, either, either collaboration or healthy competition that could get us there. And then, and then offering the evidence of how we, we could do it. It just brings your brain on a different journey that isn't set up for defensiveness. So taking you know race and gender out of it, it could be something like, you know, the aspiration is we're going to the moon, right? Like that is a really amazing, worthy, you know, Mars, wherever we haven't conquered. Um, I guess we probably conquered. We're going to Jupiter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're going to either have some healthy competition with another country to get there. And that's going to inspire some kind of national identity, or we're going to like collaborate together because what we can achieve together is going to be greater than what we can do alone. So getting that energy of, you know, and I think they're motivating in the same way um, or, you know, hitting the same part of your heart of your brain to kind of motivate you towards that aspiration. And then coming up with the evidence, like how we are going to do that is we're going to take all of those, all the manufacturing, you know, factories that are are sitting idle right now we're going to repurpose them and we're going to build you know um we're going to build uh the right vehicle to do that i realize now having said that we could have i could have said that about coronavirus right you know we are going to solve covid you know right we're going to create the vaccine how we're going to do it is we're going to come together with all of the greatest scientists in the world and the ways in which we're going to do that is we're going to have all of our you know uh leading uh, vaccine companies um, come together and share their best research and, you know, and, and, and as countries, we will subsidize that and that, that's how we will get it done, right? That's yeah. the kind of thing that, um, that doesn't push us into, you know, we don't care about, about who's dying of, of, of COVID because because th- those folks don't look like us. So it's probably not our problem, mm-hmm. right? We, we, we went down a totally different spiral when we could have actually created a different level of aspiration um, and really thought through how we might solve this, you know, um, this deadly pandemic um, and challenged us, you know, in our own thinking, in our own community. Um, one is is otherizing, right? As, you know, we think of the great John Powell and all the work he does on othering and belonging. You know, one strategy of talking about COVID put people in otherized categories. And, um, you know, whether you had pre-existing conditions, whether you were essential workers, whether you were people, you know, who were more likely to die because you were aging um, or a person of color. And by the way, age bias is actually um, in many ways stronger than race bias. So, you know, we were tapping into all of those things in this conversation versus something that actually brought us into the belonging, brought us, you know, expanded the ways in which we saw ourselves as a beloved community. And every time we take the, the, the road that otherizes, you see the policies and the structures and the institutions move towards further otherizing and further marginalization. And then we're still, you know, we're still in the same situation. We're more vulnerable because we haven't understood the linked fate. When you take the path that really leads to that aspiration and that collaboration and, and, and asks our brains to really search for the right evidence towards solving that problem, it takes us in a totally different, you know, more holistic situation. And I know that, you know, that feels maybe Pollyannish, but it is, you know, it really does show that, that, that the ways in which those narratives um, take us totally transform the kinds of policies we see, the kinds of institutions and the kinds of solutions that we see that I think are so powerful. Mm -hmm. I I hope that if 
people only take one thing away <laughs> from today. And there have been many lessons learned, but I hope if you only take one thing away today, it is ACE, <laughs> aspiration, collaboration, in comp or competition and evidence. I think that is a beautiful um, model for, for people to use if they have not um, thought of something like that in order to um, motivate and inspire people. And, and again, to your point, it can be used for policy. It can certainly be used for um, communication. Um, so, you know, an another another theme that has become um, omnipresent in communications um, and especially in philanthropic communications is a renewed focus on centering the communities that we serve and respecting and reflecting the, the wisdom um, and experience of the, the communities we, we serve. And, and sometimes that is referred to just as our audiences and, um, and, and the people that we work with. So I'm interested in hearing, you know, how, how you think of your audiences at Planned Parenthood and how you are centering patient experience, how you are centering, um, the, the reproductive justice partners, um, or any other audiences and how you are thinking about bringing them into um, your work and, and giving them a seat at the table um, with you? Yeah, I, it's such a great question. I really appreciate that, you know, in, in some ways that be, because we actually are a healthcare provider, you know, the patients are ever present in our, um, you know, in the ways in which we think about about the work, but how we it, difference between them being ever present and then also actually centering them in and their experience and 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 how we deliver and develop our own policies and strategies around that. And so, you know, I think part of that shift is what I was talking about with respect to the intersectionality. And a lot of what I am focused on is how do you actually build the infrastructure around, you know, to operationalize intersectionality so that, you know, we are um, that we have a theory of um, the case that 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 it that is is, you know, if we, if we, in, in, in broad healthcare, it would be like, if you can, you know, heal the whole person, right? Not just like have somebody come for one particular um, procedure, but you actually think about how it integrates into their own bodies and their lives It, you know, and it helps them live their best life. And I think that part of the work that we have to do, because we are both a healthcare provider and an advocacy movement um, that fights for that. Is um, is think about how we think about that whole patient and their their daily lives and experiences, so that we are, you know, you know, transforming equity in everything that we do. A really good example would be something like, you know, in as soon as we started to shelter in place in um, March, um, probably within you know a couple of weeks' time, we were able to stand up uh, our telehealth service work that we had actually been working on for the last, you know, almost decade. And, you know, when the policies shifted, we were able to, you know, to step in and leverage and, and really start to meet the needs of our patients, many of whom we had, um, we had not been able to see because of the, you know, being forced out of Title 10 uh, last year, um, particularly those low income rural populations. So, you know, in doing that, it actually forces a different kind of conversation around, you know, not just 
telehealth, which on surface feels like you can see people more regularly, but then you recognize the fact that not everybody has equal access to broadband. Not mm. everyone has equal access to, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, a computer or, you know, or, um, or a tablet or a way in which to see their patient. And sometimes they're, they're just more comfortable being in, um, in a bricks and mortar in their experience of what healthcare looks like. So it raises questions like, do, you know, how do we show up? We're trying to provide a healthcare service, but, but on our advocacy side, should we be thinking more about broadband? Should we be thinking more about, you know, how we ensure access to, um, to the ways in which people will, will see us? And where do we, you know, how do we build partnerships? Not that Planned Parenthood do everything, but how do we build our partnerships? How do we grow our, um, our alliances to do the work better. And I think some of that has to do with a, a theory of power that, um, that where we, we can use our platform and power to really grow power and to, and to support and center communities in doing that work. We don't always have to show up and be the one to say, you know, okay, we're going to lead on, you know, um, you know, Black Lives Matter. We don't need to do that because there are extraordinary leaders and they are leaders that are largely, you know, um, Black and queer uh, led and extraordinary women, right? And so how do we how do we show up in a way where, um, where we're also not afraid of, of what we look like in the fight for equity because we, because we have created a different experience of belonging for ourselves and that we can show up and support leadership. And I think a lot, particularly for a national organization to like, think about the ways in which we look and feel and, and show up. Um, that kind of interrogation, particularly public interrogation, I think is really important work for, um, for us to do. And I know I'm sure you experience that as a foundation as well. And, you know, um, others, others on the, on the line who are, you know, leading in these moments of thinking, how do we actually do it together? Cause there's so much work to do. Yes. <laughs> and there's so many problems to fix that if we don't do it collectively and, and in collaboration with that aspiration, then, you know, you know, then we, we won't solve them and we need to be able to do that in our lifetimes. No, absolutely. I, um, I want to open up the floor and hold space for questions. So if you have any questions, please send them through because I could sit here and talk to Alexis all day. Um, But I, you know, you've mentioned power a couple of times and I, I think this notion of um, sharing and shifting power is new (laughs) to a lot of people in philanthropy and um and and in the spaces that we work um so i'm again i'm just interested in hearing you say a little bit more about um especially from your vantage point how you are received when you walk in in the room as an organization and 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 what people expect of you um when when the conversations are around um are around power and around uh, lending your voice to um to issues um in in this space you know, I mean, like, pa- again, power has a definition, right? It's the ability to get somebody to do 
something they wouldn't otherwise have chosen to do. Yeah. And I think it's really important. There are all kinds of ways in which power shows up, but, you know, it can show up in force. It can show up in persuasion. Um, it can show up in, you know, our ability to, to communicate and, and reconcile that one's values with the behavior that you'd like to see to be in alignment with that. And so I feel like there, there are lots of ways in which we show up. Um, but I think for the work that Planned Parenthood traditionally has advocated for, you know, which is largely sexual and reproductive health, it's been incredibly important to have built the the kinds of, um, of power, and you know, along with our partners um, in the SRH movement, because it um, because we've seen time and time again in coalitions. Um, that when we get power, one of the first things that always falls off the policy table is protecting sexual and reproductive health. We saw that actually in in the Obamacare, in that uh, ACA fight, right? There, there was We had to fight to push to get birth control covered under ACA. And so, you know, and things that, that you think shouldn't be controversial, but, you know, when you are, when you are making these, these asks and these demands, putting the muscle of, of um, an organization like Planned Parenthood and other partners behind it really, really matters. But I think, you know, now we are at a point where we have 16 million supporters. Um, I'd like to say that's three and a half times more than the NRA. Um, <laughs> like we, it. Um, and, <laughs> but it, it, you know, but but even still, we are 17 cases, as I said, that are one step away from um, the Supreme Court, which, you know, we now know is going to radically um, be transformed in its makeup in a way that will be hostile to, um, to sexual and reproductive health. So it's going to be really important for for us to think about not just how we how we show up stronger in a in a um, coalition, it is how do we actually build the infrastructure at the intersection? Because coalitions, by definition, are temporary. They come together for a moment. They come together for a policy fix, or they come together to, you know, um, you know, for an election, and then they fall apart. And then they go and they, you know, figure out some other way to 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 lobby or organize. But when you build infrastructure at the intersection, not only does it require us to do that hard work, some of that is sitting in that discomfort and me asking, you know, um, my partners, you know. I need you to be really comfortable talking about later term abortion because that's how we're going to get hit. And that's going to bring up this whole entire um, coalition. Here's the research. Here's the messaging. We're happy to do the training. But if you're going to stand with us, you actually have to stand with us. And sometimes that means like showing up in, you know, um, for us to say how, um, you know, we are going to engage with the hashtag defund the police because we follow the leadership of the movement for black lives. We understand that this is a critical issue that when we put this, our patient center, uh, patients at the center, it means that they are the ones um, who we come to us and then make it pulled over as soon as they leave our offices. And so we need to make sure as part of, we use our public health voice to uh, to talk about how municipal budgets are, are created and carved up and why police officers should not be in the in the in the place in a very vulnerable place of having to be public health and mental health experts, you know. And how can we actually engage in a conversation and support that leadership and use our power differently? So power, you know. And again, I think it's this notion that it is completely finite. How do we actually take those moments of power building and really actually expand? Because the fights are in, are linked; they are intersecting, um, and it's so critical that we, you know, that we all are able to carry each other's water, both from a community communication standpoint and then how we show up and use our muscle in policy fights. Um, 
This has been such a learning um, and education for me even today. So I appreciate you spending um, time with us. And my final question, I just want to ask how you think about how our brains crave community and how communication requires community and trust. Yes. You know, and this is, again, my mentor, John Powell, who is the chair of the board of, of Perception Institute, I think has just been so instructive on this and, and, and building on so many others. You know, we, we, are, we are social creatures, right? I mean, you know, even those of, those, those of you all, because I'm, I'm definitely not introverted, <laughs> but those introverts out there are actually still also social creatures. They, they, they have to understand how they are connected to community to make a choice to, to not, you know, to not draw their energy from, from community. And I think that so much of the, um, so much of the work that we need to do to really expand community is to um, identify the ways in which our brains have been taught to otherize and dehumanize and um, based on where people sit within a, within hierarchy. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't said this yet, but I, um, I think it's really important because I think about this a lot. I, my kids are, are eight and 11 um, between ages two and five kids are learning how to differentiate, you know, you know, your hair is Brown. My hair is yellow. Your skin is Brown. You know, my, my skin is this, um, you know, you're tall or not, you live here and there. That's just naming difference. Between five and eight, they're actually assigning meaning to that difference. And so they understand a little bit about, you know, what the implications are um, that are the, the grounding of, of hierarchy. And between eight and 10, those, those hierarchies start to get routinized in our brains, which means the stereotypes and the hierarchy are formed by age 10. And from 10 to 100, we are literally asking people to, to unwire our brains. Mm-hmm. After all of the foundation has been built into the into this infrastructure, into these systems, into these institutions. And so like thinking about the work that we need to do to unwire our brains between two and 10, really maybe it's even younger than, than 10, um, is really the critical work of creating belonging. It is making sure that um, at every turn, we are trying to identify ways to build and expand and, and show difference in our brains so that we are able to translate that so that we feel uncomfortable when we are in communities that that don't actually have, um, you know, a, a measure of, of diversity or difference, that it makes us feel like this is really weird what's going on here. Um, and I think those are the things that are, are really important for us to start thinking about both from our, um, you know, again, our policy work, but also how we message and how we create um, a frame um, for what should be normal, what should be a, a standard of belonging and what isn't now. Well, thank you so much, Alexis. I think you have given us a lot to think about and you have encouraged and inspired us to um, to think expansively about the work that we do as communicators to create a sense of belonging um, for everyone with the way that we share um, and talk about our work. I think the... Um, I guess the, the, the real final question I will ask is, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you um, committed to the work that you do um, every day? 
You know, I, I I said this to you earlier um, in our kind of pre-chat, and I, I do, it's something that I'm really trying to hold on to. Um, I feel motivated by the urgency of the moment and the time, and I feel urgent. I, I feel like that urgency has also unleashed a level of freedom in me, right? A, a level of like, you know, I am going to lay it all on the line. I am, I am, I am, I am not going to compromise. Um, you know what I I believe is right for this work and for my people without, you know, um, in and under any circumstance. And just having a level of just unapologetic identity, having a level of, of you know, as 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 close that I think in my Gen X self have, have gotten to not feeling like I have to code switch, not feeling like I have to. You you know, shrink myself to make others feel differently, like just feeling like I can lay it online because I'm so clear that our service is our power. And if we don't grow in that service and that urgency in this moment, when, when we are literally on fire, our world is literally on fire in so many different ways, um, then, you know, then we just all need to call it in because, um, because this is the work, this is the moment to do the work. And it is so critical that we stay um, as fierce and as urgent and as, um, you know, and as hopeful as possible. I just feel like we owe it. Well, you've given me hope today and I know you've given our audience hope. So thank you so much. And thank you everyone for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye.